0: Katie Roberts, my sister, works as a research scientist at BBN Technologies, a subsidiary of Raytheon, the defense contractor, in Boston, Massachusetts. BBN, incidentally, was selected by ARPA in 1968 to create the ARPANET, the precursor to the internet we know today. Another little-known fact is that it created the first person-to-person network email in 1971, and the use of the at symbol in email addresses. Today, we speak about a wide variety of topics, but focus the first half of our conversation on teaching machines to produce text from speech, otherwise known as automatic speech recognition. What's crazy is that Katie develops machine learning models every day, but she hails from an entirely non-technical background. She studied Italian and linguistics at the University of Southern California. We discuss her transition into computational linguistics through a master's at Tulane University and a few of her speech recognition projects, one of which included analyzing phone calls from inmates at Rikers Island Prison. In the second half, we get into a very candid discussion of mental health, particularly as it relates to food and body image. Katie is forthcoming about her own experience with an eating disorder. Related to the topics today, I'm including a few references in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. I hope you enjoy today's episode. It's always a blast to chat with Katie.
1: The field that I work in is called speech recognition. And basically what that is, is like anytime you talk into Siri or Alexa, that kind of a thing, um, I work on that sort of technology. So what I do specifically is I'm on the research side of speech recognition. So if you, let's say you want to develop some sort of speech recognizer for like a new language or something like that, um, that would be my job Um, to train a new model using new data and develop the best possible model for a new language or maybe a new accent um, or some other kind of, um, some other kind of like particularity with the data that we're working with, maybe the data is really noisy or something like that, then it's my job to sort of create the best possible model um, using the data that, that I'm given. Um, so I work at a company called BBN, which is a subsidiary of Raytheon um, in Cambridge, Mass. And uh, we, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the gist of what we do is we train lots of different models in lots of different languages. Um, and we also do a lot of research into improving models um, for the purpose of speech recognition.
0: Nice. So, yeah. so what is a defense company like Raytheon <laughs> doing with a natural language understanding company?
1: Well, um, so first of all, BBN does a lot more than just that. Um, so, BBN has like a uh, like a like a cyber business unit. We have like a quantum business unit um the group that i'm in is well formerly known as um multimedia like language and multimedia so it's not it's a, it's a whole lot more than just natural language processing or speech recognition um there's a lot more to it so why raytheon had an interest in us probably <laughs> probably more so like cyber and quantum and those kinds of business units and um we also like recently for example i know there so there's like an ocr subset of my business you know ocr is optical character recognition so this is the kind of thing that you would use um if you have uh some sort of handwritten something that's handwritten and you want to use computer technology to recognize it or sorry or if it's just typed you want to use computer technology to Recognize those type letters and convert them into something that's like editable. That's what um, OCR does. And uh, I know recently we got some sort of Either bite from the Navy or or something that they wanted to use um, OCR to recognize characters on the sides of boats Um, So that was a a recent one Um, We also have contracts with the Air Force um, and uh, yeah, other agencies that I'm not supposed to talk about. Um, and yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of like government, the, I mean, the BBN itself is a defense contractor. So there's a lot of interaction with governmental agencies and non-governmental agencies. Um, but we do, we really run the gamut of like who we sell to.
0: Right. So, um, so have you, do you exclusively work on, natural language understanding, or do you dabble in sort of that image recognition or, um, you know, sort of image processing, like, you know, something like the Navy would be interested in? I, I imagine, you know, the, the goal is to sort of extract, like, characters from photos and mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I would first sort of draw a delineation between natural language understanding and speech recognition. My my understanding of natural language understanding is that it's more so, you um, you know, you're trying to automate like uh, a, a literal understanding of what's happening in a dialogue, as opposed to speech recognition. Our job is simply to convert speech to text. Um, so there's really no kind of understanding of what's being said, uh, other than um, we do implement like a language model that will allow to allow us to kind of determine sequences of words that are more likely than other sequences of words, but it doesn't really know doesn't necessarily know what's being said, if that makes sense. It's all just kind of, you know, we have a, a, a speech signal and we want to convert that to text and that's all we care about. Um, anyways,
0: and what, oh, what side of that line? So you, you more fall on the recognition side of that line?
1: Yeah. So um, I mean, to answer your original question, I don't do anything with images, um, anything like that. I strictly work on speech recognition. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I do, I work with everything from like the, from sort of end to end the speech signal to text. I work on kind of every step of that. We have like a really mature um, pipeline that allows us to sort of feed in audio data um, and then ultimately after many, many different steps spit out text. Right. Yeah. What does like
0: day to day work look like for you?
1: Um, so, well, currently I actually am working on something like pretty specific. So I have a personal interest in, um, in sort of a little bit more of like a, a, uh, like the the human (laughs) aspects of all of this. So what I'm working on right now is I'm actually, uh, I've, I've designed a gender classifier, um, using speech data, so uh, it's a similar thing where all you have to do is feed in audio data and then it'll output um, the the gender of the person speaking. Um, it is a binary classification, it's not particularly progressive, but that's only because of the kind of data that I have. The, the training data that I use is only labeled with male and female labels, so it's not really up to me. Um, but yeah, so I guess to make it a little bit more concrete, day to day, I'm coding. I'm coding in Python, creating various different classifiers. Um, for gender, I'm working on like optimizing different models. And this is um, a stepping stone toward what I'm really interested in, which is emotion classification from speech, which is a more complex task. Gender classification is actually pretty simple. Um, or a pretty, like, quote unquote, easy task. Is it Um, because
0: there are, like, really strong signals, like lots of bass tones for (laughs) for dudes and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, yes. Like, pitch features are really strong indicators of someone's gender. Um, And, yeah, I mean, there's there's probably a number of different reasons for it, but it is a, a relatively easy machine learning task. Um, but emotion classification is much more complex for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so that's what I'm kind of looking toward next. So what I'm doing right now is I'm designing a system in this machine learning framework called PyTorch. um, And I'm basically setting up a bunch of different models, a bunch of different classifiers um, that are like well-tested on this gender task because then I know you know that it's doing what it's supposed to do, and then I'll move on to the more complex emotion task, which is what I'm hoping to be really starting kind of in the first, in the new year. Um, and so another thing that I'm doing, so in terms of kind of day to day, I will sort of split my time between um, coding. I spend the majority of my time coding, and then I'll spend some amount of time reading papers. Um, and I read. Uh, I'm working on getting through all of the papers on emotion classification in the most recent sort of um, uh, major speech conference, um, so that I'm really up to date on all of the most recent literature. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm using my like winter break for is re- is reading papers, um, and you know really hoping to come up with a with a solid research area for myself um, moving forward with emotion and. Then ultimately, the goal is to write my own paper. Um, so that's kind of like the way my, the way my work operates is you know you do some research, and you, you know, I mean you personally want to write papers, but also the company really wants you to write papers and publish at conferences and that kind of a thing. Right.
0: It's the life of a scientist. It's sort of like read and do and develop. Yeah. Things like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I love it because it's kind of like grad school, but. That are are paid, paid.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So what what is so interesting about being able to read emotion out of audio data like what, what sort of application does that have?
1: Oh my god, so many. Um, so I, I mean personally my interest in it is kind of the intersection of emotion and you, you know emotion classification from speech and mental health. Um, that's my, my personal sort of ultimate interest area. Um, and in order to kind of get to that point would require, you know, me having funding to do research in that direction, which is, um, you know, not not totally clear at this point that I'll be able to really delve into the mental health aspect. Um, but aside from that, I mean, so I think I, I may have mentioned this to you before, but there's um, like I know we had interest from a customer at one point of creating like a like an anger classifier an anger detector. And the purpose of that was for like call centers to be able to determine if either their employees or their customers were getting angry on the phone, and then, you know, subsequently taking action. I guess. But there's yeah, there's a lot of different directions that you can take it. Um, And I know that there's um, like at least within like the the mental health kind of area there are things that you can do to try to detect um, the, the sort of mood state of, of someone. So you can, there are things that you can do to try to detect depressive tendencies from speech or manic tendencies from speech. So like one paper I read recently was um, this idea of kind of like a tracker that you have on your phone Um, or an app, rather, that you have on your phone that would sort of record calls, your calls that you make on your end, would record your calls and um, do some sort of analysis of your speech over time, over some period of time. And from there, determine if you might be entering into a manic state or if you might be entering into a depressive state. So this would um, be for... This would be a kind of monitoring system for someone with bipolar disorder. Um, so you could, you could really use this app as a way to self-regulate. And you know, maybe if you don't necessarily know these patterns yourself, um, maybe, the, maybe the app can pick up on that. Yeah. And,
0: and so are, are clients asking for this? Or is this is kind of just like your um, like personal interest and you kind of want to drive towards something like this? Or, or is there a or sort of a pull or like a demand for it from, from folks?
1: Um, this, this sort of mental health oriented bent on it is my personal interest. We do not have customers asking for that right now. I know that there was a project a few years ago, I think this was before I started at my company, where um, there was interest in um, detecting depressive tendencies in veterans. Um, like combat veterans, so you know, that kind of interest has been there before, it's just not like currently at the forefront of what our customers are looking for, but um, yeah, I mean, I think emotion itself, like detecting emotion from speech, is a really major component of like these speech research conferences these days, it's a really big part of like kind of the community at the moment, so um, I think my company maybe wants to have a little bit more involvement in that research area. Right. Um, yeah.
0: How much leeway do you have to kind of experiment in your job? Like, you know, at Google, they you know, famously give folks like 15% of their time, or, or no, sorry, it's 20% of their time, I think, um, to work on like personal projects and stuff. Um, does, does BBN <laughs> like, kind of allow you to, uh, to kind of experiment like that, that with the, these kinds of things on the side, or does it have to be kind of almost entirely on your on your own like nights and weekends sort of thing?
1: Well, um, my project, I, I mean we, we definitely don't have any kind of specific like percentage of time. Um, but I, I mean, I will say that like I went to my supervisors and I was like, look, this is what I'm interested in working on and they made it happen. So I don't necessarily have very many person, I mean, I don't really have any kind of um, like coding oriented personal projects that I'm working on in my free time because this is this is what I'm interested in. Um, and so that's, I mean, that that's one of the things that I love about my company is like there's a, a ton of freedom in terms of what you can research. And I don't necessarily, I mean, well, for one, I don't necessarily want to be coding 24 hours a day, but also, yeah, it's like this is essentially what I would want to be doing anyway. Um, so I don't really feel the need to take it out of work.
0: It seems like you derive a lot of satisfaction, like you in a way. You kind of remind me of uh, a previous guest of this show, Nick Bertinoli, where um, you know it seems like you sort of crave hopping on the computer to to bust out a project. Um, what addicts you to it?
1: Um, it's funny that you compare me to Nick Bertinoli because uh, he and I have had conversations about like I know like one of his former workplaces. It was really like a an intersection of all the things I'm interested in, and um, he and I have had some really fun conversations. But um, it was I think, called Listen, yes, right? L Y S S C N or
0: something, something like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and, and it, I think the idea was like automatic summarization of therapy sessions and like and maybe. I'm sure some additional features as well, but like ASR, automatic speech recognition would be like the first kind of component in that process. And then summarization is an NLP task. Um, But yeah, I was very interested in when he was working there. Um, But what addicts me to it, I think it's just, it's probably the same answer that a lot of people would give, but it's really just the problem solving. Um, I really really love coding and it's a blast when things actually work like for example if you have some bug that is making so as I mentioned before this gender identification task is relatively easy and what that means is you should be seeing accuracies in like the high 90 percent so if I'm not seeing so I've had a few different instances where there was some bug in the code and I was getting like 50%, 60% 50%, 60% accuracy, which didn't make sense. And I knew that that didn't make sense. And then it takes like, you know, toiling and going through line by line, like what what could I possibly have done wrong, finding finding the issue, fixing it, and then suddenly seeing like 97, 98% accuracy. That to me is like, man, it's so satisfying. So I think like, and it's also really cool because my, my company is allowing me to So I mentioned previously we have this really mature um, ASR pipeline and that is written in I mean it's really I don't want to say it's Frankenstein together because that doesn't do it justice because it's it's it is has required literally decades of work, but um, it's written in like a million different languages and it's tied together in Perl as kind of this top level language. And so, um, I mean, I will ultimately still be um, kind of injecting what I'm doing now into these Perl sequences, but... Um,
0: there's sort of... When I when you're talking and describing this, I'm sort of thinking about how, like, it's it, it sort of... Um, I guess my understanding of, of what you're talking about is that there's sort of these uh, services that you call from your code to mm-hmm. kind of do specific tasks. Yes. Um, is that uh is that like does that do you have to have this entire code base on your computer or it or do you do you call these things kind of by api
1: um so we don't do really anything on our local machines um we have we all have um different we we all have our own raid part uh, partitions on a um on various servers so we have like a whole queue a massive queue of machines um I'm not even sure like where exactly these sequences live, uh, and when I say sequence, I basically mean this this pipeline that I've been mentioning. Um, so a sequence will will sort of um, bind together like various different modules um, that people have written, and so yeah, I mean the sequences live on one of these RAID partitions. I'm not even sure where, um, and then you. Uh, just every day when I'm working, I just, you know, I SSH into whatever machine I'm working on. And that's that's how things that's how things operate. So nothing is ever local.
0: What's interesting about you is that you have this really non-technical sort of start to yes. your career. Like you didn't formally study computer science in your like undergraduate, right?
1: Right. That's true. So I in undergrad, I actually double majored in linguistics and Italian. And then, when I was kind of approaching graduation and undergrad, I was really faced with this decision of like, I mean, obviously, what to do next, but I knew that I wanted to stay within the linguistics realm um, because that's something that just resonated with me like no other. And I just had this, you know, sense of knowing like, this is where I want to be. So then the question is really like, what? what path to take because there are a million different sort of sub areas of linguistics. Um, and so I actually, uh, was, was, you know, looking at PhD programs just in straight linguistics. Um, and what
0: drew you to linguistics in particular?
1: Um, in particular I would say, well, actually I can tell you (laughs) like the, I had had my entire life, like, literally, my entire life, I had had these sort of scattered thoughts that I was really interested in. Um, one of which was this concept called child language acquisition, which I didn't know it was called that at the time. But, like, just the the idea of how, of how children acquire language, it's like, I mean, it's like magic. I mean, if you really stop and think about it, it really you know it's kids are just these little sponges and they somehow grow up to, to speak whatever language right. they
0: there's like this blob of flesh that can <laughs> somehow understand <laughs> sounds being spoken at it
1: and deter- and and not only that but it, you know it's one thing to sort of point at a chair and say the word chair and you know a dog can pick up on that eventually prob- probably never tried to teach ricardo what a chair is but um the fact that they can pick up on like complex verb tenses and and all of these things it's really really fascinating so yeah something like child language acquisition second language acquisition all of these kinds of concepts had been really interesting to me my entire life and i didn't know that linguistics as a field existed until i got to not only was i in college i was like a a sophomore like a late sophomore and I was really unsatisfied with, I was majoring in biology at the time, hated it. And um, I one day was just pouring through the course catalog. I was like, there's gotta be something else. And I stumbled on linguistics and then the description. And I was just like, damn, this is literally a unification of all of these like scattered um, ideas that I've had over time and it's fascinating, and I switched my major, like, almost immediately, and, like, truly have never looked back, it's, it's kind of this, I mean, I feel very lucky that it's sort of this, like, unquestioning interest in linguistics that hasn't really faded at all, even, you know, like, eight years later, however, I don't know, but, yeah, so that's sort of how I got there, and then when I was approaching graduation, like I said, I was, I had learned that there was sort of this subset of linguistics called computational linguistics. Um, and that's really just what it sounds like. It's kind of a blend of computer science and linguistics. And I decided to do a master's in that. Um, and that is, so I did like a a year long master's program at Tulane and, um, did an internship at MIT. After that, I was very lucky to get that in Boston, and then from there, I found my way to BBN. Right. Uh, yeah.
0: I, I think your story would probably be really. You know, it's probably very inspiring for folks who don't have any kind of background in computer science mm-hmm. and yet you know find themselves interested in maybe pursuing a career yeah. in that field. Um, what would be your advice to sort of come up to speed, knowing nothing about? you know, CS fundamentals, like, Mm -hmm. what was your method and like, what would you recommend to other folks?
1: My, well, my method was, you know, to do a master's. (laughs) And I would say that that's, you know, if that's something that's feasible for you, I think that's a great idea, like to do a master's in computer science or some blend of, you know, there's, there's so many different interdisciplinary degrees that you can do these days, like, you know, computational psychology, computational neuroscience, computational biology, whatever it might be, you can blend, um, your, your interest in computer science with an interest in another field, which personally I think is just the coolest. I think all of the coolest stuff happens in these interdisciplinary places. Um, but aside from that, if you don't want to do a master's degree, I mean, I think if you want to learn to code, this is not something that I did, but I know there's a, about a million and one coding boot camps out there, but in terms of more kind of like core computer science fundamentals, I would definitely recommend taking a class, In algorithms, I would take a class in discrete mathematics um, and ideally some sort of, you know, fundamentals of computer science course um, to learn about, to learn uh, sort of, yeah, like the fundamentals of object-oriented programming and that kind of a thing, like anything that it really depends on your ideal career path. But those are probably the things that you're going to need to know no matter what, or algorithms Object-oriented programming, discrete math will help a lot. Um, Did
0: you find yourself kind of hacking a lot on the side just to kind of like figure stuff out as well?
1: Well, I would say that in my master's program was where a lot of the hacking happened. And it wasn't so much in my own time because it was like, I mean, it was like 100% of my time was devoted to catching up. I mean, I really, I had to grind um, I kind of hate it when people use that word, but I really had to grind. Um, I like, I mean, I was tossed into having never taken a computer science class in my life, was tossed into a PhD level algorithms class and was, I mean, it was hard. Um, and then, you know, various other classes were like different degrees of difficulty, but it was really like, I mean, a lot of late nights, um, just trying to, figure out what the fuck was going on (laughs) like I mean and so I would say that's where like a lot of the hacking happened um and then once I got to the point where I was like kind of done with my classes and doing an internship um it was a similar thing like just lots and lots of questions and oh that's that's another major I would say maybe maybe the biggest piece of advice that I could give someone is ask questions ask questions ask questions and even if you think it's the stupidest question on the planet so what just ask it because like on
0: stack overflow or what what do you mean
1: or mentors that you have in internships or jobs um and yeah stack overflow absolutely like just put your questions out there because um you know you you something that you've been struggling with for hours someone else could probably fix in 30 seconds and
0: that's been my entire experience me too what you know in the in any of the engineering work that i've done
1: yeah oh absolutely and i think you know most places that you go if you do get an internship or a job you will probably have some sort of mentor or direct supervisor and use them like really use them um because you know there's a lot of I know a lot of people struggle with sort of like a sense of pride and not wanting to ask questions, but um, yeah, like I said, you're probably just wasting time if you're not asking questions. Right. So yeah, that's a huge that's a huge piece.
0: Tell me about the story about the prison phone transcriptions. <laughs> what was the context of that, and what was the goal?
1: Okay, so this was when I um, first started at BBN. I was sort of um, placed on this project where. Uh, We had this um, set of audio data and transcriptions for a bunch of prison phone calls from Rikers. Um, And the context was, so sort of the big picture motivation, was that most of these phone calls were um, were from men who had abused their, I mean, various women in their life. Um, and and so they were typically incarcerated for domestic violence and the phone calls were calls that had been flagged by whoever it may have been I think maybe the DA's office had flagged these phone calls as being examples of the abusers calling from the prison or calling um, talking to the Whatever, whatever woman in their life they had abused, and I do think these were all instances of men had having abused women. Um, so they would they would call the women and try to con- convince them to recount their, um, or, or excuse me, recant their um, sort of testimony about the abuse, um, and convince them to essentially help them. Get released from prison, so um, that was the idea. My task was really just to train models (laughs) um, to recognize this, like this kind of subset of speech. So there is um, a, you know, a dialect of English. um, The like, it was about fifty percent. Well, yeah, about fifty percent plus these phone calls were, um, people speaking in African American vernacular English. Um, and then there were also various Spanish speakers. There were, um, people speaking in kind of like more standard American English. Um, so I had to train a model to try to account for kind of all these different subsets, all these different dialects. Um, and yeah, so that was really my task. I, I don't think, that this project I, I'm not sure if it ever really came to like a satisfying conclusion in terms of like finding these men who were trying to convince right. um, but
0: the use case was the, use the, the, case, the, yeah. the DA basically sifting through enormous amounts of call logs, mm-hmm. finding these things and probably using them in court.
1: Probably, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I've had other other instances like that of um like uh, working with, um, a major, um, I'm just not sure if I'm supposed to say the names or if I can say the names or not, but, um, yeah, I, would, I would err on the side of caution. Yeah. Um, but working with a major like investment firm, um, and, uh, um, trying to isolate calls where people were, were doing fraudulent things. So that this is something that's like rel- like relatively common yeah. at BBN is like trying to...
0: Basically yeah. find bad actors. Yeah. So do you remember any particular vignettes from the training data? Um, for the prison oh, project? Oh, from the
1: prison phone calls. Yeah, there was... Um, there were definitely instances of men just being like... I mean, it's really sad, you know, but it was just like, I, you know... I love you so much, baby, like, you know, we're going to be together, that kind of a thing is really, I mean, yeah, bad actors, like you said. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. that kind of abuser uh, mindset seems to be something like, you know, they they abuse and then they sort of like, there's almost this kind of stockholm syndrome that seems to develop in these relationships where, um, you know, yeah, there's, I mean, the, there's the... the the person who is being abused seems to sort of crave the love of the abuser. Mm -hmm. And it's like this odd thing and it it must influence or jeopardize a lot of these cases against, um, bad people because, you know, these, these Mm -hmm. witnesses, you know, they, they, you know, they revert to, well, I fell down the stairs or something like that.
1: I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's really the basis of battered women's syndrome and, you know, it's, I mean, It's an incredibly complex and difficult situation to navigate because, you know, either... I mean, this is me speaking from, like, a totally uneducated standpoint about this kind of stuff, but, I mean, I think there's not only a sense of of loyalty to the abuser, but also a sense of um, fear of retribution. And I think that's... Yeah, I mean, it probably complicates things, I would imagine.
0: Do you ever find yourself in... Kind of a dark place when you're doing these projects.
1: Well, I have to say, I it's actually, and this is kind of interesting, but I, I, most of us uh, who who work on these kinds of things um, do not listen to the audio data very often, Hmm. Um, like rarely. Um, And in that case, in the case of the Rikers data, I did find myself listening to quite a bit of audio, partially out of interest, partially. Um, just because it was sort of necessary to establish, like, what's going on with the data, like, acoustically, like, if, if we can kind of nail down, like, um, some of the the problems with the, with the data. Um, and, yeah, but, I mean, a lot of the data that we work with is in languages that we don't speak, and there's really not a lot of utility in listening to it, unless you're trying to pin down, like, Oh, okay, there's a lot of reverberation here, or there's a lot of background noise here, right. or that kind of a thing. But because but... yeah,
0: the audio, the raw audio data, as I as I remember you talking about, it, is pretty low quality because it's like phone calls and stuff. Like... All
1: of the, all of the speech that we work with is conversational telephone speech. Well, I think probably like 95% of the data that we work with is conversational telephone speech. So it's subject to a lot of different issues, um, whether it be sort of like um, noise noisy data um problems with the channels like or um uh people speaking with disfluencies that kind of a thing like i mean just the way you and i are talking now like maybe there's occasionally like a little bit of overlap between our voices um and me using filler words constantly and disfluencies and and that kind of a thing so you really have to it's very different than um Doing speech recognition on what we call red speech, read speech, R E A D speech, which might be like a an audiobook or something where there aren't any disfluencies. Right. Yeah.
0: Is that the strangest project you've worked on, or is there uh-huh. something that tops that?
1: Hmm. That is. I mean, that's probably the most interesting kind of backstory that I have to be honest but I would say that that the stuff that I'm working on now I think is more interesting to me than a lot of a lot of speech recognition research um, which really comes down to like the ins and outs of... Um, you know, making really minor modifications to algorithms, and um, you know, getting a a point five percent improvement in word error rate, and then publishing that in a paper. That to me is less interesting than sort of this overarching goal of something that has just more of a human touch to it, like right. emotions or right. um, or even gender. So, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, what do you do outside of work?
1: Um. So. Let's see. I mean, recently I, you know, took a major tumble on the slopes and twisted my knee. Um, What else? I have been trying to come up with, like, quarantine hobbies. I think, like, me and everyone else in the country tried to learn how to play the ukulele and um, you know, taken up various like embroidery tasks and that kind of a thing. But, um, yeah, but I mean, a really big part, you know, I mean, 2020 has been, um, I think a really sort of, uh, I think it's been a, a year of a lot of like revelation for a lot of different people, like when it comes to sort of just confronting yourself you know everyone is just forced to be alone by themselves a lot and I actually live alone in Boston um, and so one of the ways that that manifested for me was that I actually decided to go into treatment um, I was in treatment for about three months three yeah, three or four months for um, my eating disorder mm-hmm. um, and that was a really amazing experience and I mean, genuinely really life changing. Um, And I think, yeah, it's just been, um, yeah, it's been basically the the second half of 2020 because it started in August. Uh, I I started treatment in August. So the second half of 2020 has really just been like, I mean, just fundamentally life changing for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So maybe you could talk a little more about that. Like, so what what about it? kind of was so um, pivotal for you?
1: Well, I think that, you know, um, growing up, I had like a certain sense of like what what health was. Um, and, you know, slowly this devolved into, you know, just less and less food and over time I just sort of lost track of what uh what a really like a a healthy day's worth of of food or something would look like and so I think the really the really pivotal moments um, were just I mean first of all just learning learning to have a better relationship with food and learning that like nothing is off limits, no food is uniquely bad or uniquely good and um, just learning to allow everything. And, um, you know, that's been really, really pivotal. Um, And then aside from that, like just, you know, the vast majority of people with eating disorders deal with um, comorbidities like depression and anxiety. And that's definitely true for me as well. And so I learned a lot of coping mechanisms for all of these things. Um, And it's helped me significantly with like my work I have been just, like, way, way, way more productive. Um, a lot more, you know, I've learned how to be a lot more, like, forgiving of myself to release perfectionism, this kind of a thing. So it's really just been, like, uh, you know, learning to, to kind of make space for all of these things that I previously saw as flaws. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's just been... Um, what really would kind you? of magical.
0: Yeah. 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 What would you say to folks who don't really know much about this like eating disorders or, you know, don't really get it? Like, I mean what I, I'd say, you know, before you know, you sort of introduced me to some of this way of thinking, you know, I um, I mean it was all brand brand new to me. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, what what would you have to say to folks who don't really know anything about this or maybe, you know, kind of abide by um you know, more typical sort of societal mm-hmm. expectations around like weight and body image and these kinds of things?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think it's it's hard to even know where to start um, because I think another, another thing that I learned was like, wow, you know, not everyone thinks like I do. Actually, very few people think like I do in the realm of things that, so, you know, I kind of thought that everyone saw the world the same way that I did. Um,
0: well, I think, like, even as recently, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know, I, I don't have exactly settled thinking on a lot of this stuff, but, yeah. um, you know, even as recently as I think somewhere around 2010 or 2012, you know, Michelle Obama was sort of waging an anti obesity yes. uh, campaign and sort of, yes. you know, telling, you know, poor parents how to feed their children. And, um, you know, I think there are, there are positives and negatives to you know yeah. that that kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it seems like how, how like what what's your sort of thought on? I don't know if you know too much about what she advocated bit, for, or yeah. you know what, what your opinion what your opinion is on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, you know, if you were to ask me before I went into treatment, I would have been like, hell yeah, like let's 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 advocate for for quote unquote health. But now what my opinion is is you know you have to start really with the fundamentals so obesity in and of itself is is a constructed um category and you know the the obesity itself is the notion of obesity is really based on this scale that that we use called bmi body mass index and it's important to to know that like you know, the BMI itself is absolute bullshit. It was invented in the 19th century by a mathematician, not a physician. Uh, I think he was actually an astronomer. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> um, and he used the BMI to, um, or he created the BMI as a way to sort of capture the, the, the curve of like average weights over white men. In the in the 19th century, Um, and the formula that he used really, you know, he squares the heights of people, and it really has no fundamental like science, scientific basis, and so that's the first thing to know is like, you you really should, you know, if and if like the statements that I'm making are, are, you know, bother you like, which I'm sure it will bother people to hear these things that are really like fundamentally different than anything that they've ever like been taught, you know, I would really encourage you to do your own research on like the BMI. And anyway, so,
0: but, um, so BMI aside, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would sort of ask the question, like, isn't there something to... Mm -hmm. You know, eating well in terms of in terms of, you know, heart risk and mm-hmm. disease and yeah. you know, things like that. I mean, like if you want to have a long and maybe healthy, you know, healthy life or sorry. No,
1: I understand. If you want
0: to have a, a long life in which, you know, your body is as um, functional as it can be yes. for as long a time as possible. Yes. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to kind of manage all that.
1: Absolutely. No, and I, I understand where you're going with this. Like I, I understand what the the concern here is. And I mean I wanna preface this by saying like I'm obviously not a doctor, I am not a dietitian, but I have absorbed absorbed a lot of information over the course of the last six months of really being inundated with with um, kind of research studies and books and all of these things. So that's where I'm getting all of my information from. But so I mean to answer your question, it is um, obviously, we all want to strive for a long and healthy life, but I think this also comes down to like what your like how you define how you define health, and and there are like many many different research studies that have shown that the the biggest contributor to poor health poor health being like poor lipid levels, high blood pressure, all of these kinds of things that you can. You can measure in a doctor's office, the biggest contributor to, to those kinds of poor indicators of health is actually um, stress, anxiety, socioeconomic status, or, or related stress to your socioeconomic status, marginalization, that kind of a thing, as opposed to body size. And I think the most important thing to stress here is that you cannot look at someone and say that person is healthy or that person is unhealthy, because I can tell sure. you- I was in a more ideal weight range at one point, and I was significantly less healthy than I am today. And so that is, you know, just the the fundamental thing here is thinness does not equal health, larger body size does not equal lack of health necessarily. Like there are a lot of different factors to go into this. And the only person that knows how healthy they are Is the person themselves and their doctor and and we are not the ones that are going to determine for someone else whether or not they should pursue weight loss uh, or anything like that
0: yeah um yeah I mean I just I I I do recall that you know there I mean there are there are patterns of of eating patterns of Mm -hmm. consumption that Will like necessarily lead to disease? Like, mm-hmm. there's like strong correlations between eating like tons of fatty red meat and like colon cancer in men. Mm-hmm. I don't have sp- those specific studies in front of me, but I've heard that reference like enough that like you know it, d- it does seem like you know good <laughs> reason maybe to have a balanced diet. Yeah. Diet. I mean, well, is that sort of emphasized in in the mm-hmm. in the in the in the literature that you know you've been reading and things like that? Yeah.
1: I mean, so I think. Um, And, okay, so a lot of... uh, I'm absolutely not, like, disputing any of these studies. I'm not the person that can do that. Um, But, so, I sort of want to reframe this conversation a little bit as, like, the, the type of eating that I have been learning over the course of the last six months is not necessarily to eat, like solely a diet of what people consider to be junk food. That's that's really not <laughs> what um, I aim to do or what anyone in my treatment program would, would want me to do. But the issue is, if you, especially as somebody with an eating disorder or with disordered eating tendencies, there's a, uh, it's really important to allow all food and that doesn't mean that you're only eating um, fatty meats for the rest of your life what it means is you can have fatty meats right and you can also have kale you can have cookies and you can also you know have a salad for dinner it's all about what your body intuitively wants and needs that's what really I would advocate and what anyone in my treatment program would advocate. But going back to kind of the notion of like unhealthy versus healthy foods, um, you know, a lot of the studies that have been done on like quote I I say junk food in quotes because um, you know, it really is kind of an arbitrary delineation. And it, it creates, it instills a, a, some amount of like a phobia of, of a type of food that, as somebody who is now trying to advocate for um, this kind of intuitive eating, I, I don't subscribe to that anymore. So, but the, a lot of the studies that have been done on junk food um, ha, are, are really um, what, what they will do is typically do studies on rats. And they so let's say we have some some particular preservative or something that we're testing. Um, what what they'll do is you know artificially massively inflate the amount of the preservative that the rat is consuming, and then document whatever inevitable negative. Um, effects result from that and the reality is that when we as you know a culture are consuming you know let's say like mac and boxed mac and cheese or, or whatever other which by the way is one of my favorite things on the planet um the faker the cheese the better in my opinion um but it you know it it's we are not consuming preservatives and, and artificial, you know, ingredients. We are not con- we are not consuming those anywhere near the levels that are studied in those studies. It's just not, you know, indicative of like what what actually happens right. in real life. So, I you know, I'm again, I'm not an expert, but it's just it's it's just that there is a lot to be said about what allowing all food can do for your mental health. And subsequently, how your mental health influences your physical health—that's right. what's important. And it's really dependent on person to person. Maybe you do feel your absolute best eating, you know, nothing but stereotypically healthy foods. You know, maybe that's true. But then, you know, I would just I would just ask you to consider, like, what about you know, you go home to your to your family on Thanksgiving, and and there's some you know foods there that don't fall into your category of health and you feel, you know, do you feel a sense of fear of those foods? Do you feel like you're not allowed to have those foods? I would just ask you to, to really like introspect and see, you know, where is, where is this coming from? You know, I'm not someone that will ever tell you how you should eat, but I would just ask you to really try to question your food beliefs and, and, See are you are you depriving yourself of anything?
0: Yeah, and and it seems like your your I mean, I I I definitely understand your angle here, which is that the toxic thing, it seems like, can often be like you were talking about these like comorbidities where Mm -hmm. you know, you're suffering from severe anxiety or depression. You know, and I think you've told me in the past, you know, that these things are traced to, um, you know, oftentimes sort of like societal enforcement absolutely, mechanisms. Absolutely, um, absolutely. You know, like uh, Cosmopolitan magazine or whatever, you know. Yeah. Cosmo. Um, yeah. You know, basically telling you, um, sort of presenting this image of like, you know, the ideal person or like, you know, sexiest yes. man alive, that kind of thing. You know, these things, because you're constantly like measuring against like that yardstick, it's sort of like a... Uh, it's like you're constantly losing yes, or something. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, it, 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 and not to sort of divert the conversation too much away sure. from, oh. um, you know, away from sort of the diet and food topic exactly, but, you know, there's this, uh, there's an analog that I was just thinking of to um, goal planning. Oh, yes. Um, yes. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a skeptic of, some of the, you know, sort of the Eastern um, sort of Buddhist tradition insofar as, you know, a, a lot of it emphasizes um, presentness mm-hmm. and enjoying the moment. Um, yes. And not in, an, not in a hedonistic way, but, you know, I, I meditate every day. Um, yeah. I, I do, I, I sort of uh, pick and choose f- from those traditions, things that I think will benefit my own mental health. Meditation is among them. One of the authors I was reading, and I, I'll uh, I'll try to look him up and and stick a uh, link in the show notes, um, mm-hmm. like I always do. Um, but you know, essentially, his his point was, well, I actually I know another author who says this as well, James Clear, who we mm-hmm. I know we both uh, kind of admire. So James Clear's opinion is that goals are not a way specifically to happiness. Habits are a way to happiness, where you sort of, everyone is kind of goal-oriented, like, you know, this year I want to, you know, run a thousand miles or, you know, whatever, you know, and, and then, and if you, you know, if well, you that's don't, just you, no, no, one, no, <laughs> no one else does that, right, um, but, you know, if I didn't hit some daily goal, and I, I actually, I'm still very goal-centric, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, I have, I have metrics that I'm constantly measuring myself by on like a ton of different axes of my life. <laughs> Um, and yeah. if I don't hit specific milestones or specific goals, even on a daily or even hourly basis, you know, like I allocate time in the morning, two hours to, you know, focus on something. If I don't do that, I feel like shit, yeah. you know. And then and so basically, I think James Clear's point and, you know, a lot of the folks who sort of have these more like sort of Eastern philosophy, sort of Buddhist philosophy influenced um, ways of thinking. Um, they, they, they tend to de-emphasize goals and and emphasize more of like developing natural patterns. And so I guess I was thinking of that as an analog to food because I was thinking of, um, body image and things like that being like these kinds of yardsticks and you're constantly living in a state of failure if you're not that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, um, it is. And, and that is one of the things that I can say from personal experience was the, I mean, among the most problematic things about my own experience with my eating disorder was that I was never that I was never once good enough. It was always, you know, there was this arbitrary number out there in the future. And I thought, you know, once I hit that, I will be okay? I don't even know. You know, it's like the logic isn't there. Um, and I would say it's a similar thing for something like, um, you know, plastic surgery, things like that, you know, which I'm, I'm not saying is necessarily good or bad. I, I really don't, you know, I would never like demonize anyone for getting plastic surgery. Um, but, I think what it does necessarily is it
0: some some plastic surgery is objectively bad. But, uh, <laughs> like, let's just let's just move on. yeah, yeah,
1: but um, but what it does is it pushes, like you said, the yardstick of your happiness gets pushed down to some arbitrary place in the future. So let's say if it's weight loss, you know, it's okay, five, ten, twenty pounds in the future that's when i'll be happy that's when i'll be okay with myself if it's plastic surgery it's when i get that next thing that's when i'll be okay with myself um so yeah i think this is absolutely an appropriate analog and i think that that's really the root of what body positivity teaches is you know again i'm not even going to say weight loss is bad um you know period i'm not going to say anything like that i'm not the expert here but let's say you know, even if you are trying to lose weight, if it really is medically advised for you to lose weight, body positivity teaches, this is what you're doing right now. Uh, what you look like right now. You can be okay with that. You know, no matter where you are in whatever journey you're on, how you look right now is okay. Right. And you're, you're, you are worthy of love and respect and self-respect and self-esteem, all of these things. And what that does is it brings that yardstick right back to the present. Right. Like, right now, I'm okay, and, and I don't need to wait.
0: You're to not, okay. like, discounting the people who, you know, want, like, washboard rocking abs, <laughs> right? I mean, like, that's just – that's a thing that you set your mind to. You know, that's, that's all well and good. But I think you're, it sounds like your point is more that the people who – don't have that right now, you know, you, you are still valid. You are still. Absolutely.
1: And I would also you can say still be happy. if you are trying to achieve washboard, rock and abs, I would say. Just uh, just think about it a little bit more. Just think about it a little bit more deeply, like why? Why do I want this? Why do I feel like I need this? Because maybe you don't and maybe you are just again, pushing your happiness down to some arbitrary point in the future where you will weigh an arbitrary number on the scale and decide that's when you're worthy of love and respect, when really you're worthy of love and respect right this second, and it doesn't matter what your tummy looks like. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, I'm I'm not going to be the person to say that you shouldn't pursue that. I would just say, don't assume that you have to do that to, to achieve something or, you know, it's it really just comes back to like you said kind of the the cosmo mentality we all are consuming well the vast majority of us are consuming a lot of social media every day and it obviously tells you unless you're in the the nice comfortable warm body positive side of social media then it'll tell you you know that you have to have washboard abs in order to achieve something and you know i would just I mean, it's actually one of the things I sort of thought about mentioning today is sort of like the origins of diets in the first place um, and how new they are, you know, like diets and the current, you know, 2020 ideal, physical ideal is really new. Mm. It's, it's only as new as like the 1940s, 19, well, maybe the 1920s is when like skinniness started to come into fashion, I think. But it's really, really fucking new.
0: Yeah, well, like I'm I mean, as you're talking, I'm recalling, you know, like the, um, you know, the hourglass-shaped yes. body with yes. the, the the corsets. Um, I think this was like a Victorian era yeah. uh, sort of deal, or I mean, it might be, actually it might be a little earlier than that. I'm thinking, you know, Pride and Prejudice kind of shit. Right, of course, you know, where like there's all these uh, women in tight corsets, and yeah. you know, The Pirates of the Caribbean. I remember I even that scene at <laughs> the beginning, which is like jammed into a corset and like can't breathe and passes out. Yeah. You know, yeah. I and mean, that all seems fairly, uh, fairly new. Right, but- it
1: is fairly new. And and one sort of um, a little I, I, story that I want to mention because I think you'll think this is really interesting, and other people will as well. But so like one of the first sort of recorded diets in, um, like the, well, in in the United States for sure was um, this instance of so this guy named Sylvester Graham. He invented the graham cracker and he was also the leader. He was a Presbyterian minister and he was a a really like a, a, a leader of the temperance movement. So he created this diet that lacked anything that tasted remotely good and it was all just, you know, Flavorless grains and yeah. graham crackers. This is why like
0: you this. always have to pack mush. Or sorry, uh, marshmallows and uh, chocolate in between <laughs> graham crackers. Right, exactly. They're kind right. of bullshit on their Sort
1: arms. of smothered in Nutella yeah. to drown out the taste of the graham cracker, right? right. Um, so they're
0: they're merely receptacles for <laughs> delicious food.
1: Right. They they are a vessel for things that actually taste good. Exactly. Right. Um, so. Basically what happened was he he decided to put his followers on this diet, and the purpose of the diet was to be, you know, aligned with their religious beliefs that had really nothing to do with their appearance. And then this was also one of the first recorded instances of people using scales to measure individual weight. But the interesting thing here, and so this was in like the, the early nineteenth century, um, the interesting thing was that He he actually was he was faced with a lot of opposition because people said this can't be healthy. People are going to waste away on your diet. And he said, No, I'll prove it to you. Nobody's going to lose weight on my diet. Let me show you using these individual scales to, to, to measure people's individual body weight. And so the, the initial kind of like one of these, the like I said, first recorded sort of instances of people using scales was actually to prove that they weren't losing weight huh. rather than to prove that they were. And, you know, and then obviously the, this, this bland diet, it came um, purely out of this, this effort to be aligned with the temperance movement and to be, you know, in an effort for, for him and his followers to be like, quote unquote, pure. I wonder, I wonder if that's one of the first diets.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's something to the to temperance. <laughs> what, yeah, to, yeah, I know nothing about uh, temperance <laughs> with respect to alcohol, but um, so I, I was just thinking though, like I wonder if there's something to the emergence of diet culture and mass media.
1: Oh, 100. percent
0: Because absolutely, you know, I th- I think prior to, you know, really, I I, I would have to guess like the mid. 19th century Mm -hmm. you know advertising wasn't really a thing um you know and models certainly like weren't really a thing and if they were around they were like painted right Um, another
1: interesting thing you're reminding me of is sort of the origin of um of having multiple clothing sizes for like a single garment or like mass-produced garments in various sizes because there was a time where again not so long ago where everyone had clothing um made for them so they would it would be like specifically designed to fit their measurements and it wasn't until the introduction of clothing sizes that there was any like comparison between clothing sizes and now sizes are you know inordinately important to people who um you know especially people that that suffer with with disordered eating, um, or, you know, or even, you know, someone that wants washboard abs, it's like, okay, clothes, the reason that different sizes exist is so that you can find clothing that fits your body. It is not about you trying to fit into a certain size. And it's just a really, you know, problematic turn that this has all taken. Mm. Yeah.
0: So did you, um, I think you, you may have wanted to share Oh yeah, um, you know some some statistics kind of related to.
1: Well, so what I we made sort of a about. list of just like general like eating disorder facts, and then also just a couple actionable things. I've already mentioned a lot of them, actually. Like, um, I mean, I think the the main thing, yeah, I think I mentioned almost every one of these. But I think the main thing to know. Um, if you know like absolutely nothing about eating disorders is that they have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. Um, And that can be either from direct health results of um, food restriction, or um, there's also a a very high suicidality rate within people with eating disorders. Um, So it's just important to know that if you think that like you or someone you know might be dealing with something like this, that it is a very, very serious illness. And you, you may not think looking at someone that they're suffering with something like that, but the reality is that, that it could lead somewhere really bad. Um, another thing that I, a couple just actionable things that I wanted to mention um, or that I would suggest to people is you know, never to comment on someone's weight, period, even if you think you're being complimentary, like saying something like, did you lose weight? Um, like, you look great. Did you lose weight? Hmm. This is actually, you know, if you say that to someone who who did not lose weight, then the implication is, oh, I thought you needed to lose weight and that you <laughs> look better now, or, you know. Kind of like
0: a backhanded compliment or really something. It really
1: is. It's a backhanded compliment. And what, what it can do is it can send people spiraling. And thinking, oh my God, you know, do yeah. I need to lose weight? I should have lost weight. I'm, I'm not okay where I am now. Um, so, just don't comment on people's weight. If you think someone looks great, just say you look great. Don't say. Don't be <laughs> specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no specific compliments. Um, no. but but yeah, just there's no reason to comment on someone's body. Um, really in any instance. Um, I would also suggest like kind of trying to rid your vocabulary of fat phobic language and commentary and that kind of a thing. Um, You know, it's really common. It is unfortunately common for people to like make fun of people that have a lot of fat on their bodies. And, you know, it really only perpetuates this really problematic mindset. Um, And then the last thing I wrote was just if you if you really have a genuine concern for someone's health, if you know, whether that be because you think they have an eating disorder or for some other reason, just kind of like I've said a few different times today, like just take a moment to determine, like, are you saying this? Are you basing this concern solely on their appearance or is there some other like, you know, really valid reason to suspect that their health um, might be in jeopardy? and um yeah i mean i think this all just kind of goes back to you you fundamentally cannot look at someone and determine the quality of their health even if they have a lot of fat on their bodies even if they have very very little fat on their bodies you cannot look at someone and determine and determine what's going on um only only they and their doctor can do that yeah yeah
0: well kate thanks for talking to me of course If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already. Also, check out my site at nickrroberts.com and subscribe to the newsletter there, which comes out on a monthly basis. It covers technology, product development, aviation, history, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.